You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name's Trent Fleskins, your host as always. This week, we are talking about Medium Density Code again, the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act as well, both being very topical in the media and the industry right now. To have that conversation, I am talking to in my opinion, a cult figure of the property development space over the last 15 years. He's someone that I've looked up to for a long time and we're going to have a little chat about the history of that as well. It's Aaron Sice who's currently at the HIA. Aaron, how are you going? I'm doing well, Trent. Thanks very much. Thanks for coming in. Mate, uh, i got to say, most people buy me dinner before uh, flattering me like that, so uh, <laughs> I'm not sure where this is leading. But <laughs> well, I'm going to flatter you even more, Aaron. I will tell you a quick story. A young 18, 19-year-old guy back in the noughties, trying to find relevant and trustworthy information about doing his first subdivision in Balga. How do I apply for a Western Power application? What's a Watercorp headwork? What's common property? All those simple questions you think of these days, but to a 19-year-old just starting out, or anyone at any age just starting out in property, are actually really critical questions that have big implications on whether they even go ahead with this in, in life at all. And back in 2008, 2009, the only source of information that I felt like I could trust that I'm guessing a lot of listeners will actually relate to were the online property forums, Property Chat and Summersoft. Summersoft was a good one. And you were essentially like the super user, super nerd who would, (laughs) everyone with their answers. No one else had many answers, but you were answering everyone's questions. Uh, I don't know what it is, man. I just, I like rules. I like understanding rules and and helping people understand the rules to get the best outcome that they they can get. You clearly like helping people because it's been a theme of your career so far, both informally on those chat lines in in comparison to the untrustworthy investor nights at the Novotel and the Langley that the East Coast spruikers used to hold for us back in the day. Your information that you would help us with on these chats really helped a lot of people, I'm, I'm sure, and certainly helped me start and get to where I am today. So a big thank you to you. I'm, uh, I'm really happy to hear that and you're very, very welcome. Now, through this podcast, we can get you on again to help even more people with some pretty technical information these days that's super relevant not only to the small scale developer at 1100 square meters or more but all the way up to the big developers right now who are talking to me on the phone every day about how concerned they are about both the medium density code and what the aboriginal cultural heritage act could be doing to affect the throughput in their business risks cost timing uncertainty so uh, you're the man that spent a lot of time researching this both in your personal time but also for hia Mm. so i thought we could go through that today but firstly just wanted to get an update on where your life's been over the last five, 10 years. I did note you've been lecturing a lot for Rewa. How's that gone? It was really good. I was running CPD courses, teaching people how to read and understand the, the R codes. A lot of people weren't able to correctly appraise a parcel of land. As a registered sales agent myself at the time, I realized this is a real big hole in the market. So I put together this course for Seven Point CPD. It was a big course. It was a real brain mash by the end of it. A lot of people were very sort of exhausted by the end of it because it is, it is very deep, very oh, it's technical. It's a lot. It's, yeah. not just an, it's not just one table in the R code. So I'm sure you reference a lot, that <laughs> yellow-coloured table. There are many pages that affect the way that uh, property can be developed. Absolutely. And I, I mean, I delivered that course all over the state for five years on behalf of Rewa. And it, it was a great time. I met a lot of people, made a lot of great connections. A lot of great friends I still have today. 
today. So there's a lot of agents that have you to thank for their understanding of how they actually appraise <laughs> and, so. and talk about the properties they're selling. The idea was that they could subdivide a pass of land on the back of a Macca's drive through receipt on the boot of their car on a Saturday morning. Well, you should be able to. And once you understand the numbers, you, numbers and data are power, right? Exactly. It's all If it's in your head, you don't need to wait for your phone call on Monday morning. So off the back of that, I started lecturing at TAFE for building design and technology in the Cert for Resi Drafting with my design background. And that went for a couple of years. And then I was offered a position at HIA for the Assistant Director for Building and Planning. And that also includes an environment component as well. So there's bushfire overlays, waterway overlays, all, all folds into planning and building as well. That's a so whole other episode, mate. That is a whole other episode. Enviro offsets, I don't even want to go there. But <laughs> <laughs> there's also the NCC folds into that as well. And NCC is the National construction code it is the governing legislation for all construction within the state whether you're renovating whether you're building whether you're doing a, a shed a flagpole or or a house or an apartment building and with that with ncc 2022 specifically we have some very serious changes and that is also bringing about seven star requirement for energy efficiency so just to segue quickly on that because this is really important that has been delayed a couple of years i assume because yes. of COVID and the building time frames with the grants and whatnot that's a good point uh, wa already has a 12-month transition period built into our regulations so even though over east might adopt it in 2022 2023 we get an extra 12 months I hear on around the traps that this new code is essentially going to make it very hard to build double brick in Western Australia ever again. Somewhat true and somewhat not true. It's a funny thing. So we're not the only state that builds double brick. South Australia are also very heavy double brick as well, but they also have very salty soil and those kind of things. So they really can't move to similar um, construction methods that we have. The issue is, is with WA is that we haven't explored other options to a great extent. But that said, we haven't had to because we've They've had... They've always been so expensive. The, yeah, they have been expensive because clay is a local resource. Uh, we've got brick factories here in the state. We don't import our own bricks. So it has been a local resource. We also had an exemption in the code. So if you had a wall that was uh, over 220 kilos a cubic metre, you didn't need particular insulation products. So there were all these concessions in, in the code for the way WA builds just by default. And now those concessions are fallen away so obviously for WA things are going to become more expensive but we now have to start using eastern states products as they're being developed and the eastern states market is already starting to soak up their own product more and more so things are less and less available for WA so we need a bit more time to get product on the ground here. is this a good move for us long term is it a move we have to make to be more energy efficient to be more green we're just going to have to build more expensively as we have over the years I remember building a house in 2010, turnkey, 4x2 for $150,000. We're now talking 350000 for that house. Are we talking with these new codes coming in, adding another 10 15% without even talking about labor and supply rates? I don't think it's that much, I have to be honest. I have heard figures bandied about that, that it will be excessive. I don't think it's the case for WA. We can still build cavity brick. We can still build with standard aluminum windows. We can still build with colorbond roofs. It's just that some of the considerations around orientation, glazing size, maybe in some parts of the state you need more insulation or you need to rethink your colour selections to allow for loading and, and, and some of the calculations that sit within the energy software. But in WA, we should be okay. There will be a cost difference and there always is with every NCC that comes out and every edition that comes out, there's always some level of cost implication but it eventually works its way through into valuations because if everybody has to do it, a rising tide floats all boats. Of course, it's just that that tide 
always rises. There is never it's, it's a situation ne- never a recession where it, where it falls away. away, and that that's and affordability half my is the theme of our state right now, really of the country. But I did say in my first episode for the year that, that affordability is the theme of the year, and the relationship between demand and supply in this state, notwithstanding build costs is going to continue to put pressure on affordability. You then tie in interest rates, you then tie in the new NCC regulations coming out in the next year, you then throw what we're going to talk about, medium density code, and now more risk and uncertainty with regards to developing through the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act issues. None of it sounds like it's going to make it any easier to provide supply or provide it at a lower cost. It's a great point you raise there, especially around affordability. With HIA, we're workshopping this uh, this ideal really Everyone needs to step back a little bit and just do no harm. So yes. look, look, look at it look at it through the lens of affordability first. And we talk about this with planning codes and we talk about this with the National Construction Code as well. But really with planning codes, especially in WA, we're getting a little bit too granular in the way we prescribe design outcomes. There's so much control. And look, planners love to control things. Pendulum is so far towards control now that it just adds so much cost and friction to the system of being able to provide supply and provide it at any reasonable cost that it's only going in one direction despite the fact that the one thing we need right now which is messaging coming from the government it's not the government it's the department i think here that's at odds with what we need which is to be able to do anything we can any effort we can to increase supply throughput and decrease cost if it doesn't help supply if it doesn't help cost don't implement it that, that should be the message. That's exactly the mantra we're going forward with, really, is, is do no harm. When you segue out of, I guess, the policy side of things and you start looking at the design prescriptions within our codes, WA is fairly unique. Like 10 principles of good design, it is Bible. And that is a good thing. It promotes good design. doesn't matter what you're doing. Single house, group dwelling, multi-dwelling. Well, it, it should, but it's still being administered by planning people who have controls who don't actually have experience in design don't have experience in design and that's the exact point and is when you start to bring about deemed to comply prescriptions that talk to room sizes on-site visitor parking apartments need to have half a star extra of energy efficiency uh, they've got extra ceiling heights they've got minimum balcony sizes plus communal open space all these kind of, you start adding these things up it's like it's like a laundry list of wants and desires from a client brief it doesn't sound like a planning code a planning code talks to you will separate pedestrian and vehicle access. You will design out crime. You will consider that a, a building has to address the street. These are planning Natural considerations, white, maybe. but it's in the NCC. So why do we need it in a planning code? We've already signed an agreement that says we won't mix the two. So why are we? Why do we continue to do that? I think the issue is is that there's too much design input into planning codes, and it doesn't matter whether you're an architect or a building designer. You're always going to be pushing for the best design outcome possible and that's great good for you go do that follow those 10 principles of design and walk that path but the reality is is now we've got a situation where planning codes are driving unaffordable outcomes because they're over prescriptive in design outcomes and and when we look at the medium density code for example the controls around outdoor living areas are one thing right yes they're bigger okay we could probably manage that but next thing you know site cover can't take into account common property where it could previously. And you say, well, what's the point in that? Like, it's an as right to the people that benefit that strata scheme. Why can't I include it? We're excluding things and excluding things based on ideal. So let's segue into the median density code that was formalised in February and will be gazetted at this point in time on the 1st of September for urban infill Mm -hmm. and 
surprise, surprise, delayed a couple of years for urban expansion. I, I just don't understand how that is justified in the first place, especially if we're trying to incentivize urban infill at every corner. It just never seems to be that way. Actions speak louder than words. Let's run through a little bit of a list, if we can, of what the medium density code is going to mean for urban infill developers, especially the small people I'd like to talk to today because the big guys know what they're doing anyway, mm. and how it's going to affect the run-of-the-mill triplex in Balga or Willoughby or Warwick Hilton. or Morley one. or Hilton. We know seasoned mum and dad developers who have done two or three of these will know the rules they had to play with. The builders know the knew the rules. The drafties in the building companies knew the rules. The rules are changing. That's okay. Change is okay. But what does this change mean for the individuals and then broadly for the industry? Okay, so I was uh, I was actually lucky enough to be involved with the testing for medium density as well. So I was actually developing solutions to ensure that things could or couldn't work. One of the things that we tested specifically was that site cover included common property, and that definition was left the same in the code, but it was changed in the explanatory guidelines after testing. So actually, a lot of the favourable testing outcomes have been unpicked. Why? I'm not sure why. I would love to get an answer to that. But it's a clause in the explanatory guidelines. Now, what that does, though, what that means for a triplex is that you can't include the common property as part of your open space calculations. So if you've got a 180 square metre lot, you might add usually, I don't know, 30, 40, 50 square metres of CP to that. You can't anymore. You're stuck on 180 square metres. So if you think about, okay, now I've got to deliver 65% of that, 65% of 180 square metres after two parking bays, which is usually what you need, if, especially if you're not you know, near a train station or anything like that. That's what the market demands as well. Even if the market didn't demand it, it's still a valuable thing to have because you might not need it, but you, the people following you may need it. And it, if they're trying to not, uh, not promote street parking, well, you need it somewhere else. So what are, what are we talking about? So the next question there is what actually fits on 100 What's left? What's left? After the increased courtyard allowance, which is now, instead of being 20 at R40, it's now 30 or 35, depending on the lot size, minus your common property outcome. Side setbacks? Well, side setbacks are actually okay with this one because they've increased the boundary wall allowance and the one metre setback has now been increased to, to 14 metres instead of nine metres. So you can do some cool stuff with the boundary walls now, very similar to what Coburn's ASP allowed, you know, where you could bounce off different boundaries with your boundary walls. Mm-hmm. That's been written into the code now and it works really well. So there are there are a couple of good things come out of it, but when you strip everything else out of it, effectively what it means is you you're nearly forcing a whole bedroom and ensuite upstairs. And this is the theme of what I've been speaking about on this podcast to colleagues for a year at least now, is that regardless of whether you understand the detail of this code or not, for the most part, this medium density code is going to force urban infill to be a minimum of two stories unless you're on a massive block, which doesn't really exist much anymore. So if you're on those six of an acre, 728 square meter blocks, yep it's very unlikely you are going to be able to develop a three-bedroom, single-story house, triplex ever again. Is that fair to say? I would say that it is not going to stack up the same as it did before. You need to remember as well, though, is there an incentivized product within the medium density code that may allow you to recoup some of those costs that born from other product? I'm sure most listeners would remember the single bed dwelling concession and you'd be slapped with a notification on title and all those kind of things that come with it. Well, now you don't have a notification on title and you can develop a small dwelling, which is now a two-bed product. And you get a 35% lot size concession for developing that product. 
but you can also develop a regular product with a gold standard livable housing design guideline attached to it that will also get you the 35% lot size concession. So suddenly a triplex becomes a four unit site just because you've put in gold standard and you've done maybe two small dwellings instead. You're still building houses with smaller footprints. And that is actually entrenched in the explanatory guidelines. It's written that they're forcing smaller footprints by multiple story, multiple Well, there we site. go, right? So I think it makes sense. What I'm saying here is that unless you're going to make smaller two bedroom houses or one garage houses on this triplex lot that we're talking about, that we, we would have previously had a three by two with double garage, that's now either going to have to be a two by two with a double garage or a single garage, or if you want the three by two, it's gonna to have to be two story and maybe you'll get a concession to do a quad. And then we turn into a situation where we're now getting hit by POS. Yeah, that's not okay either. That's really not okay. but um. We have to remember on, on one hand with the POS is that the Planning Commission have always had the opportunity to levy POS against three to six size anyway. It just if had, they had a strategy. If they had a strategy. And like you say, I think in a previous podcast, I heard you talk about the nexus. The nexus has to be demonstrated. Whether that nexus, that bow for what that nexus represents just gets longer and longer and longer and it keeps connecting and keeps connecting and keeps connecting. So soon, just because a local government has a need in another suburb, they can trigger a POS contributions in another su- in a different suburb entirely. And you think, well, that's not exactly nexus, is it? Like it's a bit... It's a bit of a long Well, it, all it's doing is formalising the cash grab that the local governments are trying to make. And I've got it on good account from some of the honest planning managers in a lot of their local governments. They don't actually need the money. They don't use the money. They don't know where to put the money. Realistically, it should be quarantined under a DCP or a developer contribution plan. That's, yeah, we need to be really able to account for where that money needs to go, who's go? paid for it. And if we don't need it, give it back. Or if you don't need it, let's look about maybe some fee reductions. Exactly. Or resourcing. If we have to pay something, let's get something in return, put on more planning staff, and and let's reduce our assessment periods down to 30 days. So when you think about the ideology of this, what they're trying to do is push us towards two-story development, higher density development. They're incentivizing it. They're giving these bonuses. For me, this code is so tone deaf in that it doesn't recognize that one, most mum and dad developers can't afford to do three or four two-story houses in Balga or Coolbalup or Willoughby or Morley. It's, they can hardly afford now the single story, let alone the fact it doesn't stack up anyway and it won't for many years to come now because of cost structures. And secondly, the market couldn't afford it anyway. People in Balga are on Keystart loans to pay for a $360,000 single story triplex. How do you think they're gonna afford the $600,000 two story house that's just being built right now? It isn't happening. So not only is the developer not able to probably afford it because they're a mum and dad developer, which is a big part of the small scale industry, but the client wouldn't be able to pay for it anyway. It doesn't, so it's never gonna stack up. It's so tone deaf. Do you recognize the same thing? I completely agree. And this is my point is that we're not looking at things through the lens of affordability anymore. We're looking at them through, gee, I'd love to do that. Gold plating. Wouldn't that be a nice thing, right? And it's where we need to have design input removed from planning codes. I, I think that the two really need to be divorced. When you're setting a policy, and I've had this discussion with a lot of designers, uh, building designers, architects, firms, been through a lot of processes where we say, if we just do this and 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 we just do this, it'll be okay and hopefully it'll be affordable. No, that's the wrong thought process. Why don't you start looking at everything through the lens of affordability? If we do this, will it affect affordability? If we do that, what does that do to affordability? If we do that, is there another option that is more affordable to deliver the same outcome? Those thought processes, I don't think, are, are completely threshed out when, when we start delivering this stuff. And unless that starts to happen, 
construction in Perth will continue to skyrocket. And it will be stymied because it won't have the throughput. Now, you're at HIA these days. My understanding from my research is a long-run average of, of construction for many years has been about 25,000 houses a year. We're only approving 10,000 houses and getting them off the ground. And that's an industry that's at capacity right now. And that's based on a code that everyone understands mm. and a code that the market can pay for and work with. Now, this code obviously goes to starting to upgrade gold plate, the standard of our living, whether we ask for it or not. It's going to move towards a lot more terraced development. Again, two-story wall-to-wall, firewalls, all these things that are more expensive and looking for a lot more what currently looks like the small apartment developments that no one can get off the ground regardless or even in the current code in the first place. I see a massive issue here being that not only is it going to be unaffordable to develop, we're just not going to see any of the supply come on at all. And there's only one outcome that this medium density code is going to create, which is the house market far more expensive. Prices must rise because supply will be absolutely stopped in its tracks. I agree. Whereas the NCC brings about a medium sort of uh, consideration around, around cost, the multiple dwelling side of things and the medium density code specifically, costs are introduced. A substantial amount of cost is introduced from these planning codes, especially if you have to go two-story. I mean, if you say to anyone, um, we'll just do that three-by-two as a two-story instead of a single-story, people will stare blankly at you and just say, well, that's an extra 75 grand, 100 grand to deliver that product. Why would I do that? It's like, well... That's a good question. Why would you do that? Then now we have the chicken egg argument as if, well, if no one can afford to develop it, no one builds it, which forces land prices up because housing is scarce. And then housing is scarce because no one can afford to build it. So no one buys it. It's a circular it. so issue. It's just this constant chicken egg argument. And we're already in that. So why would we want to accelerate that any further? And that's why Jeremy Cordina was on the podcast two weeks ago saying we should delay this whole code by three years, give the industry an ability to breathe, get through what it's doing right now, maybe get some supply back in the market. And then we can talk about improving the standards of what we're trying to build. I feel like that's a pragmatic solution to provide to the minister. Is that HIA are on board with that one well, as well. Well, I'm sure that every advocacy group is on board with it because everyone's choking already in, in the issues they've currently got with regards to POS with regards to the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act we'll talk about in a second, the grants that have just created the situation we're in the first place. On top of immigration, the last thing we need right now is a total change to the code that no one understands that will gold plate the way we live that we don't really need in my opinion. Let's move on and think about other factors in this medium density code that maybe haven't been thought through perfectly. I look at a lot of the explanatory guides and the maps, the pretty pictures that are in these and a lot of them really seem to be predicated on the ability for a small-scale developer to buy two, three, four lots next to each other and create these new mini estates. I mean, again, most small developers can only just afford one development at a time. They're not working in JV with others because they don't have that competency or sophistication. None of the big guys are in small-scale development anyway. They're out doing the easy stuff on the fringes because there are far less roadblocks and they make a lot more money a lot easier. So where do you think this is actually going to work where we're going to be creating these terraced communities in the back of Morley? I really resonate with that thought process because if you look at from a design perspective, architects love the Fremantle vernacular. They love the individuality that comes with Fremantle because it's individualistic. You, know, you can walk past a Brian Clopper and in the same breath, the next door to it is a, is a heritage home and the next door to that is a boat repair shop and the next door to that's a really cool bakery. Everyone loves that. That's what people cry for. So why then do we have these policies that force amalgamation for these massive sterilised fronts for mixed use of glass facades that 
don't have any of that kind of pattern in infill areas. And when you start talking about more critical areas like Mandurah and Rockingham, they've got policies where you have a need to have a minimum 2,500 square metres or a minimum 4,000 square metres to do something. Well, no wonder 10, 12 years later, nothing's been done and it's still sitting there fallow because no one can afford to do that. I mean, the, the biggest people in town can't afford to do that. If you don't have your eye on the prize when you're setting planning policy, it's a capital fail. So how do we fix it? What would you do if you were in an influential enough position to sort this mess out, Aaron Sice? I would be looking at a, a form-based code. I'd be looking at incentivising infill. So, for example, if you looked at a, a, every every corner block could be a, like... And the explanatory guidelines actually encourages higher density on corner lots anyway as a bookends to development. Bring about like a maximum four dwellings per lot irrespective of the zoning. So now Cambridge put something forward like this where they said, you know, you could develop maisonettes as long as it sat within the scale and size of the base coating. He lost his seat because of that. But that would have solved a lot of the dwelling typology variations within Cambridge and allowed Nana, who's lived in her city beach place for 50 years, to then downsize to something, to stay in her suburb, stay with her friends, stay with her GP, but no one wanted that. Mm. Uh, everyone said, oh, it'll bring renters. Well, renters aren't second-class citizens. <laughs> like, they deserve somewhere to live as well. So I'll be walking down a path of what can you fit inside the allowances at that code? Let's say maximum, I don't know, just chucking it out there, maximum four dwellings on a R80 lot. And the controls that the R80 brings or the controls that R20 brings means that it might be a three by two in R20, but it might only be a one by one at R80. And if you start doing that, you start to realise that you bring the flexibility back without bringing about these secondary controls like site cover and plot ratio, which are all just Archaic. garbage. Like yeah. it's, it makes no sense. I haven't met a person in the industry who actually thinks plot ratio is a good idea. And I'm surprised to that it stayed in so long. The medium density code does remove that, doesn't it? Yeah, but the medium density code removes it, but it doesn't undermine if an LPP has brought it in. So an LPP might have plot ratio um, throttles, and in that case, that's still valid. And there are some local governments that have LPPs, and that's a whole other podcast as well, I'm sure. <laughs> There's a lot of issues with uh, volume two and plot ratio. It was really designed by the design community for the design community, hence we get what we get. Let's move on to what is this week this month, the most controversial and publicised issue of the day being the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act and how that's going to affect everyone from small-scale developers, big land developers, apartment developers, miners, farmers. It just came in over the weekend, essentially, being the 1st of July, and there are still so many concerns, queries, questions in the industry about how it's going to affect their business. I have first-hand conversations just last week from leading land developers in the middle of their land developments in Henley Brook, uh, in Baldivis, in Ellenbrook, who are in the middle of their development looking to move along with their stage and have spent tens of thousands of dollars in lawyer fees trying to figure out whether they're actually allowed to dig a hole today. What is going on, man? It would have been beneficial for everyone involved had the rules, regulations, mapping, etc. been released and tested ahead of time. Medium density code went through a huge round of testing, was was, and then look work, what we got was worked through, and <laughs> something spat out the back of that. But at least it was, you know, it went through that process of the, the mechanical process of assessing it. At the moment, I feel like it was just, you know, the cards will fall where they fall, and we can just sort of work through it as we go. 
we're given assurances that we can just call DPLH, we're given assurances that we can just engage with the appropriate corporations, but the reality is, is I'm, I'm not yet convinced that they're, they're resourced for the, for the volume of queries. I guess when you digest it and you bring it back to builders' perspective, when you look from their perspective, it needs to really resemble something along the lines of what a safe work method statement might actually look like. So we do these assessments of work health and safety on site when you go out on site. So if you think about that, it's not a yes or a no answer. It's just identifies and delivers outcomes. So even though this ACH process is, is maybe, depending on where you are, maybe a permit process, you still need to do an assessment now. So instead of assessing whether you are looking at work health and safety harm, you now look at whether you're assessing cultural heritage harm. So there are these tiers, right? And it looks pretty obvious that people who are doing subdivision, digging a pool out, uh, anything where they're breaching the sand more than 500 mil is going to be in a tier where they're supposed to go about contacting a wax, and you can explain about that, uh, to get sign-off that we're not digging in any culturally sensitive area. Regardless of whether we're in the middle of a project yes, last week or not, regardless of whether we're in a suburb that's been developed for 150 years and people have been living here, whether we've got development approval already from the local government, as long as we are over 1,100 square metres in land on that lot, does the world not stop today? How does it work? It won't stop and it shouldn't stop. And I think in the absence of further information, we need to look at the intent of what's being proposed here. And I think to attempt to quell some of the, the panic... If you think from a land developer's perspective, if you are disturbing ground, which you're likely going to be doing, you probably should have been looking up your Section 18 style mapping, which is the, the, the previous process that was underway. So from that perspective, having a lot of that in place, while that's just recently been announced that that mapping can be extended for another 12 months, and we'll be calling on a lot of those groups, uh, individual cultural heritage groups, to provide more clarity in that time frame. If you'd have already been underway with your process with your Section 18, a lot of that can continue, but it may have changed. The frameworks may have changed somewhat. I would preface everything until the dust settles on this. I would preface everything with undertake a due diligence assessment per the management guidelines. Under no circumstances should you just assume, just like you shouldn't with work health and safety, you shouldn't assume that no risk is, is present. So in the same breath, you shouldn't just assume that there's no cultural heritage present. Okay, so I know that you're not a representative of the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage, but from your perspective, can I ask a couple? Of, I'll ask a couple of questions of examples. So I'm a mum and dad developer looking to lay some retaining blocks on my 1,200 square meter lot in June Danner. Mm -hmm. I got approval to do that and my labourer is about to start tomorrow. Do I have to now contact a Lark's to confirm that there is no heritage issues on this site or can I go about installing my retaining wall? You have to think about the premise at the beginning. What's the potential to do harm? How do you identify that harm? You undertake a DDA. You might not have to apply to the I think it's local Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Service. If you're unsure, you can lodge a permit. A permit is $100. How long will that take? Who is it being lodged to? Depending on where you are, it changes where that permit goes to. So you, you need to, there's actually resources that are available. I've viewed them myself that you can have a look at where that permit goes to. But that permit is capped at $100. And that's part of the other thought process we need to think about. This is a, an additional permit process. So you might need your, your planning permit. You might need your building permit. You also need to concurrently lodge an ACH permit if you're not an exempt work. 
However, it's important to remember that, let's say for example, you're on a 1200 square meter lot and there was a retaining wall there and you're replacing that retaining wall. That's actually like for like. So even though it's outside of the 1100 square meter exemption, it but still is exempt because it is like Aaron, for like. Aaron, this is nuts, right? I'm a mum and dad developer. I've never even heard about Aboriginal cultural heritage. I mean, living in my house for, in Joondana for 60 years. I agree. Right? I wouldn't even know where to look. And I've got approval from the council to put my retaining wall in. Surely I'm just going to go and put my retaining wall in. It's, What's it's, the risk? What's the risk? And that that's the assessment that has to be undertaken now. So in the same... But who's qualified to make this assessment? It's a mum and dad. The mum and dad might actually be qualified to undertake that assessment. And that's the point behind, I think, the management guidelines. So I encourage everyone to go and have a look at those management guidelines about, about what it talks to, because that's a free download. It's really true. It's, it's very frustrating. To, to, to walk this through with people who aren't involved with this every day because you can see the frustration in their face and you can you can feel the frustration when you're sitting with them that it's red tape. It, it is red tape. It's red tape without even having an answer for what specifically that red tape is right now. And the government's been pretty outward about and open about this. They haven't set the larks up yet properly. We don't even know where we're going. There is no set fee on how much it's going to cost to make this inquiry. We don't know how long it's going to take to get a response. It could take 12 months. And I'm that, sitting there waiting for 12 months to, for some fellow to tell me that there's no cultural heritage on my site that I've been living in for 70 years. I completely sympathise with that. I really do. I think that's just scratching the surface for mum and dads who are just trying to go about their day yeah. in suburban areas that have been populated. And I know cultural heritage in the Aboriginal sense goes back for tens of thousands of years. But for most people's perspective, it will be quite frustrating that there's another layer without even knowing what that layer looks like yet. We then move on to the next example, which might be a large format land developer subdividing half of Henleybrook, who's in the middle of their development and isn't sure what to do today because they still haven't got any concrete answers about whether they're going to get in trouble for turning on the tractors. Undertaking a DDA per the management guidelines is actually a defence in the event of accidental harm. So that's, I guess goes right back to my initial point is that anyone involved in this space that may let's say for example you look on the on the mapping that's available and you're in that that hatched area that's really your big red flag i need to do a dda so if you undertake that dda and there is accidental harm having undertaken that dda per the guidelines is a defense but of course no one wants to really get to that point though right i mean no one wants to be triggered by by no i mean no one wants to even be close to any of this no no, no one wants to harm Aboriginal uh, heritage sites, right? No but one. The problem I can't is anyone that wants to. No, exactly. N none of it comes from that background of not caring. It's just that the system that's being set up has absolutely no clarity right now. Look, if I go on MNG Access, there's actually a layer for where cultural heritage is. Yeah. I can check that. But I, that's a service that costs thousands of dollars a year that a mum and dad developer, for example, wouldn't have access to. Is there any online site right now that looks like an easy net or looks like a Google Maps where a mum and dad could go on and check, which this should be it for me, especially in the urban areas, whether their property sits 
in a zone of cultural heritage that needs further investigation? Because if it doesn't sit in that zone, what are we talking about? Yeah, so it's a good point you raise about the free resource. So I'm aware that DPLH have their own mapping system that is online, very similar to an intramap style product that's free, that hatches what you can look at and, and whether you sit in a zone or not. I believe a similar hatching exists for the outgoing Section 18 mapping as well. If so that's available right now? Absolutely, you can go online. For a mum and dad who's doing a d- quad development in Craigie, if they can look on this website and it shows that there's no hatching over Craigie for Aboriginal heritage, should that not be enough individual DD for them to not have to contact a larks? In my opinion, it should be mapped. It really needs to be mapped conclusively, not okay, you're not in a mapped area. And this is currently what it says. It says you may not be in a mapped area. That doesn't mean that there's tangible or intangible issues being faced, which again, it just inserts another layer of grey into this that when you're investing the kind of money that you think about when you're doing land development, and it doesn't matter whether it's a house behind a house. It's all know, relative. Or, or, you know, 200 lots all in, relative in, in, to the in Brabham. It doesn't matter. The reality is you're still investing a heck of a lot of money And that has to come from someone's blood, sweat and tears to generate that. And when we give them grey processes and grey answers, it doesn't help anyone. It doesn't provide industry certainty and confidence in the WA economy to develop this product. Two things. There'll be people on one side of the risk profile who go, stuff it, I'm just going to claim ignorance. And And that's the last thing anyone wants. Well, but it's probably what's going to happen for most people who still haven't even heard of this, who haven't even thought about it. And then there'll be people on the other side who are super conservative, don't want to offend anyone, don't want to be impactful, even for the 1% chance. Their development will be held up. It depends on the layer of consultation. There is a 14-week cap to some of the consultation that's required. And if we do that at the very beginning of the process, you can actually engage with the LARCs, which is the group in your area. So there's one for Perth, there's one for Peel, there's one for the Southwest, there's one I think is coming up in Albany, there's one in Kalgoorlie, all those kind of areas. You can actually engage with them up front and that will actually knock a lot of the back end of the consultation period out. That's right. If it took 24 hours, I think we'd be okay. But if there's going to be a time frame here where it might take a month, two months, three months, then what that means is no mum and dad developer is going to be able to have that time for due diligence to check off on that if no, they see it as not. a risk. How do you build 14 let's, weeks into a DD clause? That, or you don't even get DD in a, in a resi market right now. Or let's say they took the risk before lodging the WAPC application, they're then just sitting on holding costs for two to three months, which right now could be $15,000 across three months. So we're not talking about 100 bucks for a response from a Larks. We're talking about $15,100 for holding costs and a response from Larks. This is where it starts to just get really unworkable. And again, another frictional point, too much risk, add the POS contribution, you add increased build costs, you add risk to how I'm going to build it in the first place. Where's the supply going to come from, Aaron? At the time when we need supply, land supply, realistically developable land supply, not things that are just zoned urban deferred and floating out in the back of the sticks, realistic land supply. We need it affordably and we needed it 10 years ago. Why do we have this new uncertain process in front of us? I am glad that we have a 12-month, I guess, deferral on the use of previous maps and what that might mean because that gives some certainty that those projects that sit within a, a bridging window can use the stuff they've done in the past so they can they can continue that process. But in that time frame, especially HIA will be pushing for amendment regs to develop more clarity and provide better prescription about what a DDA actually really should be considering and maybe refine what a DDA needs to consider. What it looks like. Yeah, because if I have to go through a 10-step process like 10 principles of good design, 
but a 10-step process for every single job that you do, how far down the rabbit hole does this go? Where does it actually stop? And unfortunately, there are sections of the state that may be permit exempt, and that's fine. They're exempt from needing a permit, but they still have to undertake a DDA. So you start to say, hang on a minute, aren't I exempt? It's like, yeah, from the permit, but not from the process. And that's confusing in itself. When you say the word exempt, exempt means exempt. Thanks for coming. Yeah, so look, I think this this highlights at the low level, not even at the large apartment developer, land developer level, the level of confusion this is going to have. For what I think the Department of Planning misunderstands is a really important part of urban infill delivery, which is a small-scale developer. Over a 1,000 applications a year are lodged with WPC from small-scale developers. Mum and dad is trying to make their way, who one day could become large developers. If you stymie this process and make it too risky, too expensive, not only do you make it too expensive for people to buy in the first place, you also start to disincentivize an industry of people looking to solve this problem that we have right now. That I think is the big risk. When you add up the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Act with the POS Draft Act, with the school's contribution policy that came in, with the medium density code and the realities of increased construction cost anyway in this market, on top of the immigration we have and need anyway, this has to be the most tone-deaf policy suite I have seen from the Department of Planning, Lands and Heritage in my life. And someone needs to start talking directly with them, standing up to them. And I hope that that is the Minister John Kerry who has the ability to see through this and start making real change. It comes back to a recent mantra now is, is do no harm. Let's take a breath. Let's consider what is actually realistic to deliver and, and let's look at everything through the lens of affordability and supply. See where things fall out of that first and then let's deal with it rather than ideology, ideology, ideology. I'm like, do it properly. Yeah. Let, let, Let's not rush give it. Give us a framework, please. Yeah. Give us a framework. Uh, and, and we say, well, how do you provide a framework against intangible stuff? It's like, because someone went out there and walked it. Someone walked and said, this is an intangible issue. Let's map it. Mm. How about give us that? I mean, people say that, oh, we're resourced. We're okay to do it. Well, clearly not. It's very evident. The, the resourcing is yeah. not there. Yeah. We don't know who the people are. We don't know what they're going to charge. We don't know how long they're going to take. And therefore, all that put together means uncertainty. Aaron Sice, Assistant Director at HIA these days and cult hero of small-scale development for many years now. (laughs) Thank you very much for everything you've done for this industry, even in the background, without any plaudits for many years. Thank you for what you're doing at HIA and thank you for your time today. Thanks, Trent. That's lovely. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!